listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode number 196, and I'm your host, Elena Levin. And joining me today are my co-host Brian Egger and Pontus Bachmann. Всем привет! Hey, son, hey, son! All right, trips. <laughs> Hello, Brian, <laughs> welcome back! <laughs> Hey, it's good to be back. It's been over a year since I've been on. I thought you guys had no uh, forsaken oh me. No, 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 no. No, you've forsaken to... us yeah. for much more exciting things like raising a family, etc. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, no hurt feelings there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how is life? I guess life of Brian, right? Um, the, oh. the, life, the life of Brian is good at the moment. It's not involving a lot of sleep, um, but uh, it's, 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 been, anyway. it's been a lot of fun. I, I was desperately hoping that I was going to, uh, you know, take think, take a back seat with regards to scepticism and all that sort of thing. But that hasn't happened either. So it's been uh, all oh, hands dude. on the pump uh, ever since the little one arrived. So, yeah, yeah we are all good. But yeah. Have you guys missed me? Best late plans, Brian. Best late plans. Yeah, yeah for you sure. Try your best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, of course we've missed you. Yes. So, we missed you very much. Yes. Yeah. I have one thing actually I want to say before yeah. because I'm, I've not just missed Brian, I missed something else and I missed something <laughs> that I was supposed to say last week. <laughs> so I wish I wanted to fill oh, that yes, in. Oh, yes, you did. Yeah, I did. <laughs> on, on the last episode, I meant to give a shout out to the lovely Claire Klingenberg and her Jakub for the fantastic wedding they had in Prague, which I was lucky enough to be able to go to. But I, I guess last week when we recorded, it was Monday morning at six o'clock. So my brain wasn't really working. But thank you so much, Claire and Jakob. I had a great time. It was an almost a three-day event with uh, touring the city of Prague the day before the wedding reception. And of course, the Halloween wedding where everybody was dressed up just fantastically. And then in the following day, when you th- would think that everybody would be extremely tired, and we were but happy. Then there was the newlyweds brunch that I was invited to as well. So fantastic uh, arrangement. So congratulations once again. I wish you two could have been there. uh, Yeah, I mean, it it looked amazing. I've seen some of the pictures. It's sort of like a a, a sort of bizarre kind of steampunk horror show. Yeah, Um, (laughs) it was. The the bride and groom looked amazing. And and some of the guests as well were very well dressed. What about you, Pontus? I hope you... um, uh, scrubbed up a little oh, bit. Oh, I did. Least. I was unrecognizable. I found this great. Well, that's the best way. Yes. Eh? <laughs> yes. By the way, Pontus, you pr- you promised me pictures as a person who doesn't frequent Facebook. Oh, I am still the one in the dark. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, I will send some over. Fine. But I had a big, crazy wig and um and a mask, and uh, I was pretty happy with that. So, and it, it was amazing. Nice. We the whole wedding ceremony was in costume, and then the whole. Uh, I think maybe 150 people all dressed up walked through the city over to where the actual festivities were going and we were going through this over the bridge this famous Charles whatever bridge and there was a lot of tourists there and we came marching on and everybody was just standing gaping what the hell is going on so vampires and and uh, Edward Scissorhands and pirates. Yeah. And, and that's the fancy-ass bridge with all of the sculptures and stuff on it, right? Yes, that's right. Have you been there? I, yeah, I have been yeah. there. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it was my first time, but it was great. Oh, man. Uh, the tourists must have thought that like you guys were like putting on a show as part of the tourist board or something. Yeah, they thought yeah. we were part of the, the scenery or whatever, you the, the attractions. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, congratulations to Claire and Jakob. All the best to you guys. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, congrats, guys. Uh, the wedding sounded really amazing. So on this optimistic note, we'll, sh- we'll move on and uh, we'll jump straight into the podcast and our next segment, an interesting event on this week. And actually, we are sort of um, doing something different uh, this week because Brian is on the, our show as a guest and he will be presenting. Go, Brian! <laughs> Okay, so hop in your little time machine with me, folks, and take yourselves back to the 10th of November 2009. Probably a 
piss cold evening in Glasgow. Um, chances are it wasn't a nice night, but that was the inception date of Glasgow Skeptics. So, um, yeah, we are celebrating our 10th birthday this week. So back then, 10th of November 2009, our great founder, my forefather, <laughs> Ian Scott, who founded a Skeptics in the Pub organisation while he was too young to be in a pub. Um <laughs> set up the first ever Glasgow Skeptics event and had the wonderful Ash Price come to speak for us. Now, Ash, not long before that, had been uh, the the godfather of Edinburgh Skeptics and was, was coming over to do a talk for Glasgow. He spoke about scepticism in general, sort of a scepticism 101, and psychic frauds. So, you know, as of our event tomorrow, which I guess by the time this podcast goes out will have been a few days ago, but Monday the 11th, we're celebrating our 10th birthday by having Ash Price come back and do another talk for us. It's actually more of a show. He's more of a showman these days. He's doing his paranormal illusionist show. We're going to have cake. We're probably going to have beer. I won't be having beer because I'll be driving. But yeah, so um, in those 10 years, we will have done 276 events uh, as of uh, as of tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. That's which, pretty impressive. Uh, I, I, I know you guys are fast approaching podcast number 200, which is a hell of an achievement. And, and we're super proud to have hosted that many Skeptics events as well. Um, I think we're uh, outside of Edinburgh. I think we are probably the most prolific uh, Skeptics group when it comes to organizing talks. And, you know, over those years, we've had some some real big names, you know, in, in sort of science and skepticism. Here's here's a few of the names we've had. Aaron Ra, Richard Wiseman, Rebecca Watson, um, Noah Heath and Eli from The Scathing Atheist, Tom and Cecil from Cognitive Dissonance, AC Grayling, Simon Singh, Michael Marshall, Chris French, Steve Colgan, somebody called Claire Klingenberg, um, <laughs> Nate, Nate Phelps, Izzy Lawrence, and, and all sorts of other folk as well. And so, you know, I, I, I couldn't be happier to be um, at the helm of, of Glasgow Skeptics as we pass such a big milestone uh, and I want to say a big thank you to um, as I say the, the founder Ian Scott who built the whole group out of nothing and then you know for me to take over it was such an easy job but yeah, uh, yeah we will continue doing so and, and you know at some point round about July or August of next year we're going to hit event number 300 as well so happy 10th birthday Glasgow Skeptics yeah, yeah. indeed I, I, and would it be would it be unfair of me to ask if you have a highlight in all these 10 years I'm, I'm sure that there were a lot of amazing things that happened so um, the the biggest event we've hosted was shortly before the the Scottish independence referendum. So we had a, we had a number of uh, representatives from the, the various parties, and we had like nearly four hundred people in the Mitchell Library, which was which was awesome. The result of the referendum didn't quite go the way I was hoping, so maybe that's not yeah. quite the highlight. But actually, I, I would say like like five years ago now, round about to to, to the date, we had um, Nate Phelps come to speak for us, yeah. who is. Um, mm, for you guys um, uh, yeah just a, such an amazing guy for those un unaware if you're aware of the Westboro Baptist Church the crazy kind of anti-gay extremists in America Nate Phelps is the son of uh, or one of the sons of the founder of that church and he left the, the church at the age of 18 is now and is now a, a campaigner for uh, you know human rights and LGBTQ rights as well so he came to speak to us in front of like 300 people and it was just an amazing night and he's a lovely guy and I got to pick him up from the airport and I saw Ed Sheeran in the airport at the same time so we yeah I know he's even shorter than I am it was amazing look um, at him dro name dropping left right and yeah, center yeah, whatever name dropping and oh yeah so so yeah five years ago we had one of the biggest names in atheism come speak for us and you know here here's an exciting announcement as well coming next month in Glasgow it looks like 99.9% .9 sure we're going to have Matt Dillahunty come to speak wow. for us as well so or amazing next month, that's it that super may awesome, be yeah. my highlight I'm super excited about that wow so um, Brad uh, recently started, well, not recently, but he's been doing it for a while now, uh, listening to the uh, Atheist Experience, and I overhear it. And it's the most fascinating show. I don't know if you guys were ever into it. It's, oh, it's wonderful. It's pretty full-on uh, logic bashing. <laughs> <laughs> no, bashing with logic. 
<laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. It's great to see Matt in full flight. So but, you know, I mean, he, he does, you know, a lot of uh, work on YouTube about sort of um, epistemology and yeah. philosophy and debating techniques and stuff as well, which is which is equally fascinating. So, yeah, check him out if you haven't already done mm. so, listeners. You'll be in for a treat. Mm. Or go to Glasgow right. and meet him. Yeah, exactly. Come to Glasgow, 16th of December. Oh, great stuff. Well, excellent. Congratulations. And um, it's a big, it's a big date. Indeed. 10 years. That's an amazing achievement. And here's for 10 more, I guess. Thank you. And, and maybe more. Okay. So we're moving on to our next segment where Pontus is poking the Pope. <laughs> Yes. Well, last week I mentioned uh, a bishop's conference in Leicester to investigate sex abuse allegations in the UK. There's now also an ongoing similar bishop's meeting in France in the city of Lourdes, set out to decide on possible compensation to victims. So that's good. Uh, the work to gather information started earlier this year and almost 3,000 emails, calls and letters have been sent out and received to identify and interview victims. On 9th of November, the meeting decided that there will be a lump sum payment, presumably to some kind of fund or so to make reparations to victims. The, the details are not clear yet on how much money we're talking about and how it's going to work. But the Positive thing, I think, is that the bishops have declared that they recognize the, quote, aggression undergone, unquote, and the, quote, silence, negligence, indifference, lack of reaction, bad decisions or dysfunctions within the church, end quote. That's pretty far going, in my opinion. Are you, That's good. That's some soul searching there, pun intended. But I think the important trend here is to see that over the last year, the Catholic Church has started to shift from blaming individual priests to recognizing that the church has a responsibility as an organization. Wow, took them long enough. <laughs> yeah, of course. That, yeah, to any out outsider, that's been obvious for years and decades and maybe hundreds of years. But still, hearing it from the church itself it feels a little bit good. But, of course, there are some problems. There is a statement from the head of the Lord's Commission... Jean-Marc Sauvé, and uh, that I re reacted against this, he said, quote, The majority of sexual abuse occurred in the 1950s, 1960s and 1970s, much more than in later decades, end quote. That is probably not true. And it's obviously an attempt to pretend that this is a thing of the past. And I, I very much doubt that. For one thing, it often takes very long time for, well, takes time for victims to grow up if they are abused as children and even longer then to find the strength to speak up uh, which makes it natural that we know more about old abuse cases than new ones this doesn't mean that uh, it has stopped but still they're trying to make an effort um, both in Leicester and now in Lord to deal with these things and so I think that should be recognized but it also appears these are locally driven initiatives without much input from the Vatican itself. We heard last week about the failure of the Vatican Embassy of, of the UK to even reply to requests from the Leicester Conference to help out. And Francis is very silent uh, on this. He tends to talk about other things. And when he does speak about sex abuse, uh, it is always evasive and more focused, I feel, on how to minimize the PR damages than to getting to the bottom of the problem. So that's that. That's ongoing. There is another thing I want to talk about in a follow-up of the recent synod on the Amazon. Perhaps Francis, he may have opened Pandora's box on this one when it comes to married priests and female deacons. The synod on the Amazon was very clear that their recommendation was that it should only apply to the Amazon region, not to the church in general. But however, German bishops have called for this kind of reforms for decades, and the bishop of Usnabrück, I think that's how you pronounce it, Usnabrück, uh, a guy called Franz Josef Borde, he welcomed these proposals and he suggested that the European synod on the same topics should be arranged. Um, uh, he must have balls the size of uh, <laughs> yeah. space hoppers, right? He's like, yeah. come on, yeah. come on, can we do it as well, please? We I don't want to have to move to the Amazon to get my end away. 
<laughs> so we don't know what Francis is thinking about now because he's still working on his reaction to the Amazon synod. Um, For sure. But I'm sure he, he this was not the intention and I expect he will be very reluctant to, to spreading these ideas to, to Europe. Married priests? Women? Married deacons? Priests. Ooh, the horror. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd just jumping back a little bit. Surely they've missed a trick in Lourdes, right? I mean, Lourdes of all places, right? If you've, you know, molested people, can't you just heal them with the magic holy water that they've got there? One would think. That, that's yeah, right. Yeah, here, just let me sprinkle something on you. No, no, we've already done that. Let me give you some holy water and you'll feel a lot better afterwards. We don't need to give you compensation or put anybody in jail. <laughs> Well, I think it's very good of them to consider monetary reparations instead of holy water. So, yeah. I kept thinking, what does Amazon, the uh, corporate giant, has anything to do with it? Every time you mentioned Amazon, I'm like, oh my God, they're in, in it as well? <laughs> no, well, <laughs> Jeff Bezos is a no end to him, you know. But, you know, uh, I suppose if you, could, if you could have priests order a wife on Amazon, then, you know, at least it would arrive quickly. <laughs> Via drone, possibly. Yeah, there you go. Pope never disappoints, right? <laughs> no, no. All right, well, thanks very much, Pontus. Thank you. On to the news now. So we, we talk about Edzard Ernst quite a lot and um, always recommend his books because they're really good and we use his website as a source of news. And his book, Trico Treatment, co-written with Simon Singh as well, has won a best mental health book of all times on a website called Book Authority. I think it's a, it's a great honor that it's uh, this book is being recognized. I haven't heard myself about this Book Authority website, so I, I did a little bit of digging, and it seems like it's a some, something um, it's a source that bloggers would use when they would discuss some sort of a product or a book, indeed in this in this instance, and they would link it to the website, and it it becomes more and more popular. Indeed, on that website, when I went onto it uh, in section psychology, social science, psychology, mental health, there was this book treatment listed with a link to the Amazon. So it's just another way to advertise uh, a great book. So mm. why not? You know, great honor and well done. Congratulations. Yeah, it's a great book. Do they get money? Do they have to share it? No, the, he didn't get any money from what I can see. Prestige though, right? And maybe maybe some more book sales. He's such yeah, a humble guy. He, when he we is. met him the last time, he in, in front of an audience, he said, well, you don't have to buy this book, but go to the library and borrow it. That's how he yeah. promotes his yeah. books. Uh, your last oh. interview with him was great oh. as well when he was talking about his new book. He's like, you probably won't, wouldn't want to read it, yeah. but maybe just use it as a reference, you know? And I thought, <laughs> oh man, you're so modest, Edzard. I yeah. like you. I want to adopt you. Yeah, he yeah. needs a PR lesson, but uh, he's a great guy. All right, so um, this story comes to you courtesy of The Independent in the UK. Headline, entirely organic farming could raise food emissions by 70% in England and Wales. Mm. So, dramatic headline there telling us maybe, maybe something counterintuitive about organic farming unless you're already in the sceptic circle. So this is a summary of a paper recently published in a journal called Nature Communications. Na Nature Communications sounds more like um, Dr. Doolittle behavior or <laughs> Prince Charles talking to plants, but I believe it is a respectable journal. So to give you the, the details in a, in a factory farmed nutshell, um, so certain foods require more land or transport when they're produced organically, which makes conventional production more green in some cases. But it expands on that by doing a full life cycle assessment. And effectively, since they are, the, the yield of organic crops is lower, more land is going to be need, needed to produce those crops. More imported crops will be required. So if you consider the additional carbon footprint of additional transportation. So the article actually starts talking about the moral part of your brain urging you to choose organic products at the supermarket, even though they're more expensive, and the potential cognitive dissonance of having both organic and non-organic products in your basket. Now, that, that irked me just a little bit, you know. But here, spot the logical fallacy here, right? Mm -hmm. 
Organic farming is a way of growing food which uses fewer artificial chemical inputs such as synthetic fertilizers or pesticides. This means it generally has a lower environmental impact per yield. Mm. So not, not necessarily a logical fallacy, but can you spot the error in that statement there? Well, I think it's the appeal to nature. Logical fallacy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think as well. Like using fewer artificial chemical inputs such as synthetic fertilizers or pesticides. There there is a, a, a complete myth amongst many proponents of organic farming that organic farming doesn't use any fertilizers or pesticides, which is completely not true. Mm. So yeah, they certainly do use fewer quote unquote artificial chemical products on their crops but that doesn't mean it's better for the environment so the the article does get it wrong there but it goes on to say that over the full life cycle some organic uh, crops um, produce higher greenhouse gas emissions per ton than conventional farms while others are actually more efficient under organic farming so you know the the essence of the article kind of talks about you know maybe how you know just having a bit more of a balanced approach which i guess is fair but it does sort of end end the piece with some, you know, pretty balanced and sensible opinion on the dangers of intensive farming. Let me just quote, loss of biodiversity, reduced water quality and poorer soil health, which ultimately makes food production more vulnerable. Eventually, farmers risk degrading the environment so much that some countries, including the UK, would rely on other countries for food anyway. Now, now I think those are valid points, but... You know, there is the assumption there that if you ramped up organic farming to kind of, you know, mass production levels, that you wouldn't have similar problems. I think there may be an argument about uh, crop rotation and and, and better soil health. But other than that, I think there's some fallacies in there. But... Mm. The more fun part of this article was seeing the backlash from the organic crowd on that. So I I went looking and found a a sort of a rebuttal article in a website called In These Times, which is a, a website dedicated to rural issues in America, which I thought meant incest and playing the banjo, but apparently not, right? So it was essentially trying to deconstruct that article and and criticize it. So let's take a look at some of the faults in there. So regarding the food shortage, if we moved entirely to organic, it says what the authors overlook entirely is the ability to fill that production need by reducing food waste. So can you spot the error there, guys? Or spot the logical fallacy there? Yeah, yeah, it's a false dichotomy. You could do that anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It's also, I saw it as a little bit of the Nirvana fallacy as well. Mm-hmm. Great, that's fine. Reducing food waste, great. Go, you know, go ahead and do it. Replacing something with an idealized alternative is not a good solution. It then goes on to talk about the destruction of wild lands. It notes it's a bit ironic to accuse the organic uh, agriculture of the future destruction of wild lands considering that conventional agriculture has caused and is causing the extensive loss of grasslands and forests. So again, that's true, but it would be exactly the same if you were to move to organic farming. If you ramped it up to those kind of large industrial scales, you get the same thing. You know, there's other points there about the the difference in crop yields. And and again, there's mistakes in in their rebuttal there. It says research supporting uh, organic practices could further decrease or even eliminate the yield gaps entirely through the use of best management practices and further research. Well, that is making the assumption that a, the you know best management practices are always going to be used, and B, the further research that they do is going to, forgive the pun, but bear the fruits of <laughs> making organic farming as productive as non-organic farming. So the rebuttal is, you know, full of holes, which, you know, uh, are pretty easy to spot if you take a, a critical look at it. But maybe not so much if you're already uh, ideally aligned um, towards organic farming. Mm. Mm. But, you know, it's a moot point anyway, because England and Wales is going to be a barren, flaming (laughs) wasteland after Brexit anyway. (laughs) Oh, dear. All doom and gloom over there. (laughs) Yeah, we're still in. We're still in and we're holding on with our bare hands. Yeah, Scotland will Mm. leave Great Britain, of course, and and stay in the EU, right? Uh, all right well, okay uh, maybe that's I, another not, podcast 
I, yeah, that, that that's another podcast, and you know I don't want to invite any hate mail by um, <laughs> expressing my political opinions in that department. Ah, very wise, very <laughs> wise. No, but I, th- yeah. I think if we, we talk about the organic versus conventional farming, one thing that always irritates me is that you sort of lock it into two different ways. Either you do it with organic farming or you do it with conventional farming and there is this either or situation but why don't you just pick the best out of both i mean there's nothing there are things with organic farming i'm sure that is good and there are things with conventional farming that is good just don't create this dichotomy between these two things let's do it as best as we can without a doubt Mm. without a doubt and Mm. you know i i I guess there there's maybe some more arguments towards organic farming when it comes to livestock and how they treat their livestock but again you know if you are interested in feeding the planet and keeping emissions down you know um cows in particular are bad so you know eat more vegetables folks is the lesson to be learned there if you really want to help the environment Mm. and don't Mm. have kids either which I've done. Sorry. Yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Next news item. Uh, There are two European academic organizations that have released a joint statement criticizing the WHO, the World Health Organization, for including traditional Chinese medicine or TCM in their latest version of the ICD, the International Classification of Diseases. I'm I'm sorry for the many abbreviations here, but that's just how it is. (laughs) These two organizations, they are called the European Academies Science Advisory Board and the Federation of European Academies of Medicine. But this is is a topic that we have talked about before. It's to a a large extent the legacy of Chinese-Canadian physician Margaret Chan, who headed the WHO between 2007 and 2017. She was born in Hong Kong and as such had a much more favorable view of TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, than any of her predecessors. She was also criticized for other views. She said one thing that was really stupid. She praised North Korea's health system after a visit in 2010, stating that she, among other things, saw no signs of obesity in the country. That is pretty <laughs> that, That's pretty yeah. stupid when you're talking ah. about a country where people are starving. Well, at least they there's said, no obesity. They said the same thing when they liberated oh. the concentration camps after the Second World War. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. See what you like about the Germans, but they really yeah. had them exercising well. Yeah. Yeah, so she, she had some flaws, I would dare to say, this uh, woman, Margaret Chan. Yeah. Yeah. During her second term as Director General of the WHO, she promoted getting TCM into the International Classifications of Diseases. And that is what happened eventually in May this year, when a whole chapter was added on. And uh, actually it earned the WHO a really wrong award from yours truly at the time. The criticism from the European Academy's Science Advisory Board and the Federation of European Academies of Medicine. (sighs) They are the same as the one we brought up. You cannot include unproven modalities in an official document that is otherwise describing legitimate treatments. So I really hope that WHO is listening to this critique and they are now under new leadership. Maybe that can help. And I hope they will listen to reason and change the ICD again and take out the, the traditional Chinese medicine stuff. But uh, the current version has been accepted by the member states of the WHO. So we will see how it works out. Well, if, if a really wrong award from Pontus hasn't done the trick, who knows what will? <laughs> yeah, I'm baffled that they haven't changed it immediately. Mm. Mm. Well, talking about traditional Chinese medicine, so the next thing I want to talk about uh, also comes actually from Edzard Ernst. He does a lot of good articles, I have to say. And it's to do with how bad the TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, is for your health, in case you didn't know that. Mm. There uh, have been a study published very recently that looks at complementary alternative medicine-related drug-induced liver injury in Asia. I think it also applies to Asian population outside of Asia. So, like, I know that UK has got a big Asian population, and so does America, actually. 
And it conducted very large uh, research looking at the use of complementary alternative medicine for treatment of acute and chronic diseases, I'm quoting now, and how it's been on the rise worldwide, especially in Asian countries, uh, China, India. Drug-induced liver injury, D-I-L-I, the, the uh, abbreviation is actually quite silly, but the the actual thing is very, very dangerous. Yeah. So the drug-induced liver injury is DILI. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Cam is increasingly reported in the literature from multiple centers all around the world and with a large number of patients uh, series published from the West and mostly based on a nationwide drug-induced liver injury networks and multi-center collaboration. So alarm bells are ringing now. And I just want to quickly go over what they talk about hepatoxicity and what does it actually means. It is a drug-induced liver injury that is, implies a chemical-driven liver damage. So you, when you take drugs and your liver basically pack it up and stops working. It's a very serious condition and it actually causes not only people to feel sicker than they were when they started the treatment, but uh, it causes death in many cases. Wow. If let's say you are a reporter, you have this um, condition and they you're not able to get on a transplant list or whatever, the treatment quickly, that's it. That's game over for you. The study is very interesting, and I, I was actually reading through it myself. I don't normally do studies because they have a lot of words I don't understand. I'm struggling <laughs> with with normal conversations. Never mind um, a medical study, but <laughs> but in this particular case, they had pictures. I love me some pictures. Mm. Uh, pictures of, of the this medicine, uh, the traditional um, uh, Chinese medicine, with no labels, just some dried up herbs in the bag or something that looks like a very uh, questionable mango drink or like some collection of just various, like, again, like herbs and, and pills with literally handwritten instructions on them. So really bad. And people buy this stuff uh, mm. and they take this stuff for very serious conditions. And if you take, the, well, in, in this instance, they were explaining all their results based on the actual patients who were taking these things. And they were talking about uh, three to four week treatments. That's it. That's all it takes. And then the liver just gives up and, uh, wow. uh, and the patients uh, often end up in um, emergency room. Hmm. And in fact, uh, in a few cases described here, the patients died just because they, they didn't receive the treatment on time or it was too late or whatever. Because they took few herbs. And, uh, you know, back to the point that was made over and over. What's the harm? Well, that's the harm. Yeah. 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 Don't, don't take drugs that cause that. But so, but what, what I also wanted to mention, so this traditional Chinese medicine is not regulated at all. So what's so good about, listen, I'm not defending big pharma, whatever, all this evil, blah, blah, blah. But... What's so good about the real medicine and the, the real process of creating med medication that, that is uh, patented, tested and whatever, that if it is discovered that the medication causes this, uh, this drug-induced liver injury, it gets banned momentarily from sale. Whereas in this instance, it's just being sold because there's no, uh, there's no, nobody's regulating this. Just, you know, one more point for proven medi medication why it's not you know it's it's just dangerous to your health basically to your life yeah so there we go i mean what Insane. one of the things that i i'm not i was going to say like i'm going to say one of the things i dislike the least about alternative medicine is usually usually it does fuck all so it's not good but this is actually making you worse you know that's that's fantastic. Yeah. Do you know, I, I listened to a, an interesting podcast about the, the early days of homeopathy, you know, with Samuel Hahnemann and not that I'm, uh, um, you know, endorsing homeopathy, but considering what <laughs> doctors back then used to do to you, a lot of times, you know, doing homeopathy, which is the same as nothing, was actually better yeah, than better. going to see a regular doctor. Yeah. So, you know, the the least we could ask, please, is these people, you know, if you are going to sell people bullshit, could you make it bullshit that's vaguely harmless, please? Yeah, you know? and doesn't kill you, just, yeah. Yeah, you know, just but raise the bar a tiny, yeah. tiny little bit, please. Yeah, and it's, 
it's no longer just uh, sugar water, right? These are some herbs that they throw together that they think they're going to help your skin condition or whatever yeah, you look, yeah. you're look looking to cure. Yeah. And fuck knows who, who, what these herbs do to you. Well, in this instance, they damage your liver. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very serious thing. Obviously, it's symptomatic of sort of old superstitions and such like, but it's also symptomatic of lack of provision of good health care, proper health care, or maybe the, the lack of availability of proper health care, depending on the country. Or, uh, you know, may, maybe in uh, in the US, you know, you can't afford proper health care. And then, you know, some mm. Chinese medicine yeah. practitioner is going to say, yeah. well, I've got a bag of yeah. bizarre looking yeah. herbs that are going to help yeah. you. And okay. <laughs> yeah, take this for a month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? You know, I'm going to die yeah. otherwise. So, you know, give give me your weird bag of stuff. Yeah. And even if you steal man the, the procedure and say, okay, but some herbs actually can help you. But there's also the question is, yes, but every plant is different. It may have grown in the shadow or in the sun or it got too much rain or too little rain or it was, gro- it was growing in, in some specific soil that contained arsenic, which happens. Yeah. That you don't know. But with proper medicine, you've actually synthesized the good parts and you've hopefully haven't added the arsenic that could kill you or whatever it is. So, yeah, that's also that. Yeah. yeah. And I can think of a much better bag of herbs that I'd rather buy Ooh. anyway. Oh. Well, well, but listen, so I think I was with Brian when, when I thought, you know, all these kind of homeopathy and actually Chinese medicine is just, you know, a bit of herb that's not going to hurt you. But this is real serious stuff. So um, that's pretty eye-opening for me. So... Yeah. Don't do this shit. <laughs> so again, WHO, get rid of that chapter of the book. We don't like it. And it's it's harming people because I, I, I forgot to mention actually about the WHO, the ICD document. It does say that these treatments have not been scientifically proven, blah, blah, blah. But they are in the same book as all the, the other yes, things. Yeah, and so they, it's misleading. It gives it's reading that it's, far? And the proponents of these treatments are not going to say, oh, by the way, do. it also says in there that it's bollocks. They're going to say, no, oh, no, look no. what the WHO are endorsing. Exactly. It's so irresponsible. Yeah. Yeah, you, you can't just do the, the small print afterwards. If yeah. it's in WHO, that's it. It's, it's endorsed. Right. Okay. So um, this story is going to go firmly in the no shit Sherlock files. And it's very (laughs) at odds with what we were just speaking about there because now we're talking about proper medication and modern medicine and proper medically trained doctors and the prescriptions that they prescribe. So this story comes from Le Monde. And uh, thanks to Google Translate, we didn't have to rely on my high school French to uh, figure this story out. So the headline is doctors who receive gifts from pharmaceutical companies prescribe more and prescribe less effectively. So uh, French GPs who receive gifts from, from pharmaceutical companies tend to make, quote, more expensive prescriptions and lower quality, shows a study published on November the 6th. Conversely, those who receive no benefit from the pharmaceutical industry are associated on average with better indicators established by Medicare as to the effectiveness of their prescriptions, and they generally cost less. So prescribing Mm. more effectively and perhaps not going for the brand names. So apparently the the authors of the paper screened the prescriptions of just over 41,000 general practitioners working exclusively in the liberal sector and classified them into six groups according to the amount of benefits received during the year 2016. Now, for the doctors, the physicians who received no gifts from the pharmaceutical companies, they were associated with less expensive prescriptions more prescriptions of generic drugs compared to the same non-generic drugs, fewer prescriptions for vasodilators and benzodiazepine for long periods. I definitely know what that means. I'm just struggling <laughs> to pronounce it. Gesundheit. Uh, and, and other things. So the pharmaceutical companies apparently spend a lot of money on drug promotion. Have a guess, guys. What percentage of their turnover uh, is for drug promotion? 50. No, it's less. Oh, Pontus, 
Um, well, uh, don't say forty-nine. That's cheating. Thirty. <laughs> ah, okay. Twenty-three percent. Twenty-three percent is purely on promotion, which is still which a lot. Yeah. Yeah, more than they spend on research, apparently. Oh. You know, and and of those drug promotion budgets, the gifts are only a part. And uh, in a study published by the British Medical Journal, what percentage of GPs have received at least one gift since 2013? Have a guess. Ninety percent. Uh, Eighty. Did you say ninety, Pontus? Yes. Ah, oh, did you read the story? That is fantastic. I, you are absolutely bang on. Ninety percent of GPs. Well, now. I was close. You were. You were close. <laughs> yes. I want to be acknowledged for eighty. Yes. Yeah, close, Congratulations, but no cigar. Yeah. You are close, but you get no cigar. Pontus, you get the cigar and all the health benefits it brings you. So, which is it's a pretty huge number, right? Yeah, and and I I don't know what t- it doesn't say what type of gifts in in general, but it it could be like um you know like hotel stays uh, you know or you know speaking uh speaking engagements where they're well paid and that sort of thing. I know like my ex mother in law used to work in a doctor's surgery and she used to get like all sorts of pharmaceutical reps coming in and they used to sort of like bring in like a you know, like food for them, like a takeaway and all sorts of stuff like wow. that to, to sort of, um, should we say, endear themselves to, to the staff of the medical practices. And then at some point that stopped. I don't know whether anything like that still goes on. Maybe there's more kind of um, backhand opportunities going on here. But, you know, I, I, I think it's a useful story to think about. I don't think the results of that study are surprising in any way. But I think what we should say is, considering the num- number of times that I've been accused of being a shill, probably you guys have as well. For ad- mm-hmm. you know, for all the time, all the time, like for speaking out against um, you know, quack medicine treatments and stuff. And oh, you know, you're a shill for big pharma. I think it's really important that we make those criticisms where we see them. And clearly, here's a study that's gone to show that you know wh- whether doctors, physicians are being explicitly influenced by these gifts or even just sort of subconsciously influenced them, it's having an effect. And this is, you know, mm-hmm. the paper's useful information. Now we've got solid evidence. This is where we want to see governments coming in with regulations yeah. about gifts, about um, stating them, about auditing um, physicians on the prescriptions yeah. that they make and maybe trying to encourage mm-hmm. best practice. So, you know, the fact that, you know, we on a Skeptics podcast are calling out the pharmaceutical industry and calling out the um, modern medicine machine for their faults, I think shows that, uh, you know, we're, uh, you know, equally inclined to slap around the people who we usually support when it's appropriate to do so. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Now we'll never get that check from Big Pharma, but uh, thanks. Well, (laughs) yeah, you you, you can cut this segment out if you want. I don't mind as long as I get some of the money. Yeah. I think it is a reality that the uh, pharma industry and and doctors are interlinked. It is just what it is. And you're right that we do need more regulations, which is, of course, not a very popular opinion, I'm sure. I I Mm. have a cousin in, in the US who used to work as a pharmaceutical rep, you know. He, he now sells marijuana. Legally, I must uh, state. <laughs> Good but, for him. <laughs> but, but, you know, he, he said it was a pretty disgusting job to be in. It caused yeah. him a lot of sort of moral problems and he eventually sort of quit it because, yeah. you know, they were under heavy pressure to, um, mm-hmm. over you know, exaggerate the effect, the, the good effects of the, the medication they were trying to promote yeah. and downplay the side effects, you know, um, mm. because you're a salesman, you know. There, there, there right. should never be any type of industry like that in healthcare where, where you're employing people to, to act the same way as somebody in a car showroom, you know. It's, it's so no. problematic. Mm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I, and I think um, that's what uh, harms the reputation of the medicine exactly. and cre- creates these problems where, let's say, 10, 20 years later, they're having to deal with the fact that if the people were taking those medications and had those terrible side effects are now coming to look for somebody to take accountable and sue. And and there's I'm sure there's several big lawsuits actually happening in America as we speak. I can't remember the latest one. Uh, in fact, we might have even talked about it on the podcast. And it's a very counterproductive thing because then, of course, people from the other side, from the alternative medicine side, come along and they say, look, yeah. look at this mess, you know. Yeah, come and buy my weird bag of herbs instead. 
<laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So now we've bashed all kinds of medicine. Uh, we should move on. I want to talk about the climate change a little bit. We remember that five weeks ago, uh, we gave a really wrong award to quote unquote 500 scientists and professionals unquote who had signed an open letter to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres claiming that there is no climate emergency. Well, these 500, whereof only about a dozen actually were climate researchers, they have now been challenged by over 11,000 scientists who have signed another document <laughs> called World Scientists' Warning of Climate Emergency. And the statement starts, and I will quote it because it's good. Scientists have a moral obligation to clearly warn humanity of any catastrophic threat and to, quote, tell it like it is, unquote. On the basis of this obligation and the graphical indicators presented below, we declare with more than 11,000 scientists signatories from around the world clearly and unequivocally that planet Earth is facing a climate emergency. End quote. Boom. 11,000 experts now against the dozens or so individuals in the previous document. I think that mm. sums up the, the scientific consensus pretty well. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be one or two who will say, but not really. Not really. No, yeah, they're all bought. You, you asked the wrong scientists. Yeah, they're all bought by NASA anyway. So. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. More shells. They're, they're, they're the ones getting all the money and we get none of it. We get none of it, however we <laughs> try. Okay. Uh, the document has a lot of very illustrative graphs that I recommend you check out because no matter how you turn it around and look at it, all the data points in the same direction. But there is also a bit, unfortunately, a problem with the statement, a little bit. Stupidly, even though the people behind the statement claimed that they had checked the signatures for four separate times, a few errors slipped through. So among the 11,000 signatures were around 30 duplicates and mistakes, including one uh, Professor Albus Dumbledore of Hogwarts and one Mickey Mouse. So mm. that that's not very good. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's not denigrate the great work of Professor Dumbledore, okay? Uh, or or no. uh, or Mr. Mickey Mouse. Uh, yeah. So the consequence was that the list of signatures had to be taken down again for another check before it was republished, containing eleven thousand two hundred and twenty-four, hopefully now validated names. Yeah. I mean, a little impressive piece of nitpicking. Do you know it's 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 interesting? We um, in Glasgow Skeptics had a talk from actually Sean Slater from Edinburgh Skeptics uh, mm. recently about friend 5G. Of the show. Yeah, yeah, friend of the show about 5G scaremongering, and we unfortunately had some anti 5G activists turn up at the talk, and they told us about like a petition that had been signed by 200 scientists uh, about the dangers of 5G, and I, you know, and it was separated by country. So just out of interest, I went and took took a, a look at the, the first 10 names on the list for the UK. And like amongst them were like undergraduate students, uh, recruitment consultants, somebody that worked for Lush, you know, the company that makes sort of um, bathroom products and mm. stuff like that. <laughs> Very so, like, impressive. They, they really didn't have their scientists in, uh, on the list yeah. there. But, but yeah. you know, I, I would have hoped that, uh, you know, if we're producing a list of 11,000 scientists, at least the vast majority of those 11,000 would yeah. be competent and genuine scientists, preferably working in the climate change area in some way, shape or form, right? Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, there's 153 countries represented in the, the in the list. I, and also, I want to say, remember, it's been said before that 97% of all scientists are convinced about the issues of global warming. Well, now, if we take these 11,000 scientists and compare it to the, I think it was 14 valid signatures of the first document, we can now adjust that number to 99.9% of all scientists agree that uh, global warming is happening. So let's not wait for the one-tenth of a percent to come over. Just, let's just go and fix the problem now, shall we? Yeah, how about that? Yeah. That would be nice. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, and I will end this new segment on... Uh, a somewhat silly marketing ploy by 
the supermarket chain Lidl. I used to shop in Lidl when I lived in the in UK. It is a, a German supermarket chain. They are, out of goodness of their heart and help people to reduce sugar intake, invented a spoon. Oh dear. And that spoon looks very silly indeed. It's got like a little bump in the middle. So when you put a spoonful of sugar in your coffee or tea, whatever, you're going to put a little bit less because of that bump. So it kind of takes space <laughs> in, a, in a spoon. Guess if it works and guess if people are taking less sugar. No, it's, yeah, let me answer that for you. It doesn't work. No. And it's just a marketing ploy by Little selling this uh, device <laughs> yeah. to those who will buy it and to be viewed as the ones who care. Although... Yeah. Yeah, they probably well they might they might really care i don't know maybe i shouldn't say that but uh, in this very interesting stunt i'm not sure it- i think people pretty quickly learn to take three spoons of sugar instead of two spoons of sugar <laughs> when they know it notice it doesn't work yeah that's yeah, true yeah. Yeah. i i, yeah. I wonder though what effect it'll have on the the people of edinburgh cooking their heroin on the spoon though maybe it's gonna Ooh. reduce their drug intake that would be fun maybe yeah <laughs> but anyways here we go <laughs> <laughs> I feel like little should be in, in in really rock segment today, but anyways, yeah, that's it from the uh, news section, and uh, we are moving on to the really wrong segment this week with Pontus. Yes, Sweden is known as one of the most secular countries in the world, even though the monarch still needs to be a Protestant to keep his job. And the former state church is still collecting their membership fees through the tax collection system. Uh, Only if you're a member, you don't have to be a member, but if you are, they are getting help from the state to collect their membership fees, which is silly. But, But that's not really the topic for today. Because despite this secularization of Sweden, the Swedish government can and does subsidize certain religious organizations, ostensibly because they perform charity work or in other ways do good things for the public. But they don't subsidize all religious organizations. To be eligible for support, a religious organization must, quote, maintain and strengthen the fundamental values that our society rests on, end quote. So one denomination that has requested to be subsidized is Jehovah's Witnesses, and they have been doing so for over a decade. The government have turned them down time and time again and pointed specifically to the fact that Jehovah's Witnesses encourages children to refuse blood transfusions. Which is why Jehovah's Witnesses have lobbied the government for a long time now to claim that they no longer oppose blood transfusions for children. And it has worked because to my horror, the Swedish government has now granted their request after all. And I'm not happy about this at all. I generally oppose any public support of religious organizations. Maybe the only way I think it could be justified is if you support only specific projects and charity works that are not specifically meant to evangelize and that are open to anyone, regardless of religion. But of course, it's very hard to to control for that. But Jehovah's bloody witnesses, come on. There are now... 67 former members of Jehovah's Witnesses who have published a debate article in one of the largest Swedish daily newspapers, Svenska Dagbladet, where they explain why government, the government is absolutely wrong in their decision to, to subsidize uh, JW, as we call it in the trade, Jehovah's Witnesses. So don't take it for me, the bitter atheist. This is what people who's been there say about Jehovah's Witnesses. First of all, they say that JW is not telling the truth when they now say that they're not against blood transfusions for kids. That doesn't fit with their own experiences in the church. And as an example, they talk about the small no-to-blood cards that are supposed to be carried at all times. Pretty obvious. JW is also not a very democratic organization, to say the least. They are against all political work, and as a JW Member, you are actively discouraged to take part in any political party or even union work. The third thing is that they are very big on discrimination of women. Women are supposed to not give their opinions, should always regard the man in the house to be the head of the family and follow his lead. So it's the old uh, shut up in the congregation kind of thing. 
The fourth thing is LGBT discrimination, which is actively done. And any non-cis persons are regarded as sick or mentally ill and uh, that they lead an immoral lifestyle. This article in the paper also references something I talked about earlier this year, which is the homophobic videos that have been known to be shown in Jehovah's Witnesses schools, uh, which they were fined for as well, which was good. Then, of course, there's the history of sex abuse within Jehovah's Witnesses. And they have the outspoken policy that this has to be handled within the church and do not involve the police at all. Thank you very much. And lastly, and maybe the thing I've heard uh, that I really dislike even more than the other things. Everything is bad, but this is really awful. The way they handle defectors from the church. You're supposed to be isolated and shunned and excluded from any and all social interactions, even from your family, if you leave the church. And I've met and spoken to a few that has gone through this. It is is horrible, really. I've had the Jehovah's Witnesses at my door many times. And one time Mm. I I asked them about that practice of shunning uh, and they denied it. They flat out denied it, said it's not a thing, it doesn't happen, uh, it's been exaggerated, etc. But yeah, as you say, uh, you speak to people who have been in in that organization and left it, they know Mm. all too well how bad it is. Yeah, we we, we had a man coming in, one of our uh, skeptics in the pub, to talk about this. And we didn't realize, but he explained in the talk that he was actually very, very nervous to do this talk because he had spent over 10 years gradually distancing him, himself from the church. He's worked for this on this for over 10 years because he didn't want to lose the contact with his mother and father, his siblings and other people. He said what you do is you, you, you start by missing a few of the sermons and then when people get used to that you start missing a few more and then you gradually, gradually, until people don't even really notice that you have stopped going to them all together. In this talk, in the Skeptics in the Pub, was the first time he publicly had st- he stated that I have left the church. But he had been working for that on that for over 10 years. Well, that is incredibly mm. brave of him to do that. It was. Well, you know, up on stage. But it's just heartbreaking, the fact that you have to muster up bravery just to say something as, you know, to us as inconsequential as, hey, I changed my beliefs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Disgusting. Yeah, Yeah, as if we need any more proof that religion is bad. For sure. Uh, Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting that they're getting government money. There's a weird situation over here in the UK as well. Like, if you want to be a charitable organisation, there are a number of criteria which you can, you know, attempt to tick off. And one of the criteria is the spreading of religion. That's actually grounds for being deemed a charitable organisation, which, uh, you know, certainly doesn't seem charitable in my mind, even though, yes, we do know that some churches do charity work. But, you know, that's the that's a minority. And a lot of time it's loaded work they're doing in order to sort of recruit as well. Yeah, they do it for a reason. And it's, uh, yeah. So for granting public funds to such an oppressive, undemocratic and abusive organization, the Swedish government, no less, gets today's prize for being really wrong. Boom. Boom. Sort it out, Sweden. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it, I think, for today. Woo. Thanks very much, guys. I'm going to just finish this show with a quote from Oscar Wilde, nonetheless. The quote goes like this. There are only two kinds of people who are really fascinating. People who know absolutely everything and people who know absolutely nothing. The end. Okay. And uh, we fall somewhere in between, right? <laughs> <laughs> are you saying we're not interested? How, how dare you? We're probably not fascinating, but we can talk about people who are fascinating, though. No, but it's actually interesting because I made the journey. My skeptical journey has taken me from a person who knew everything to somebody who realized that I I don't know anything. No, nothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's something I say frequently if I'm sort of introducing myself on behalf of Glasgow Skeptics. I'm, you know, I'm not a scientist myself, but some of my best friends are. Um, you know, I, I like to think of myself as a sort of a science pimp now, you know. I know yeah. a lot of incredibly clever people and it's a real pleasure to be able to help uh, give them more of a voice. Mm. 
Good. All right. Uh, the, and the, and this is uh, the end of our show as well. And it's been fun. Thanks, Brian, for stepping in for Andres today. Uh, we appreciate it a lot. And I know that you've got a lot on your plate. So I hope you get some sleep soon. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Hey, it's been a blast, guys. And let's make sure it's not a year until the next time I'm back Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Yeah. Amen for that. Yeah. Well. Sure. All right. Well, take care, everybody. And uh, until next week, paka paka. Bye-bye. Laters. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time. But until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. And today joining me are my co-host, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) What's his name again? Good start. (laughs) I'm going to just finish this show by uh, 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 um, by, b- by slowly dying. <laughs> <laughs> no liver failure, I hope.